You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. What's up, Sunday Schoolers? Good to see everybody. So glad you're here. Um, if you could introduce yourself to somebody you don't know. And by the way, we have lots of seats up here if you want to sit in the front row and be cool like that. So move up if you want. Meet somebody you don't know. Ready, get set, go. Do it. And then after you're done greeting and meeting uh, your fellow Sunday schoolers, would you turn to Psalm 59? We're in the habit of uh, encouraging, encouraging you to turn in your own uh, either Bible, electronic Bible, or paper Bible to the passage. So find Psalm 59. Psalms are right in the dead center of the Bible, and Psalm 59 is probably pretty close to right in the center of your Bible. So turn to Psalm 59. This is a passage about um, delivering you from enemies. And so this is going to apply because we're still talking about the Middle Ages and church history. And we're specifically, one of the things, one of the many things we're going to talk about this morning is the Vikings, enemies of the people in Europe. And so this prayer, uh, I can imagine people in the Middle Ages praying this um, about the Vikings, enemies coming up from nowhere. So it says this, Psalm 59, verse 1 says, Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. See how they lie and wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine, Lord. I have done no wrong, yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plight. You, O Lord, God Almighty, you are the God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to the wicked traitors. Some hard words about um, enemies and having enemies. So let's pray this morning. God, we, we do um, thank you and praise you in the midst of all life circumstances. And Lord, as we look back and see people um, in the midst of war and, and enemies coming up and attacking, Lord, would you give us insight and wisdom into this that, that we um, might feel um, your spirit and who you are when it comes to um, violence and war and this this suffering that undergoes uh, so many people living now and, and that have gone before us. So Lord, we, we worship you. We praise you. We, we do give you glory and honor and praise. We love you, Father. And everybody screamed. Amen. Amen. So we're going to talk about Vikings. This story, in a very roundabout way that I'm going to tell you, has something to do with Vikings. Um, here is uh, a picture of uh, a park on Lake Superior, and Erica, my wife, is from uh, Duluth, Minnesota, and we got engaged at this spot, like right um, on the shore of Lake Superior. It was precious. Um, it was evening in July of 2006. I, we, took, we went on this walk, and it was beautiful. We uh, got down on one knee. I read her a journal entry from like when I first met her that said, like, how cool it'd be if, you know, I think this girl's really cool and godly, and uh, I would love to spend my, the rest of my life with this girl. I don't write that about every girl I meet, but I wrote it about her, and then um, we got engaged. I got down on one knee. She said, yes, and this park happens to be named Leif Erikson Park. And if you don't know your Viking history very well, um, 
well, if you do know very well, you'll know that Leif Erikson is a Viking, which is kind of an interesting name for a park in the middle of Minnesota. So here's a map of where Minnesota is. If you're not familiar with Minnesota, Duluth, Minnesota is right on the tip of Lake Superior, uh, pretty far uh, east there. And apparently, Leif Erikson made his way in like the 1000 AD uh, to Minnesota. And that part, we do think, uh, historically speaking, that Leif Erikson made his way to the New World about 500 years before Christopher Columbus. So if you think that the first uh, Westerner to sail the ocean blue was in 1492, it was Christopher Columbus. Well, we have pretty good uh, historical evidence that leads us to believe that Vikings, uh, including Leif Erikson, made his way to the new world. Now, it is questionable as to whether he um, made his way all the way through the Great Lakes, all the way to the tip of um, the shore of Lake Superior. That part is pretty questionable. Goes along with um, some like folklore of Minnesotans. And if you ever wondered, uh, do you know what their national football team is? The Vikings. Well, that's the reason why, because they think that the Vikings, at least Minnesotans, think that Vikings made it all the way to Minnesota, which is probably not the case, but we do think it is the case that Vikings made their way to the new world. So we'll come back and talk about Vikings in just a moment. But first, let me officially welcome you to the Mill Sunday School. Thanks for coming. Um, hopefully there's, there's coffee and bagels and stuff back there. Hopefully you're enjoying those things. Um, they're free. And if you're new to the Mill Sunday School, we have, uh, I think all the tables have, should have some cards that look like this. You could fill it out with as much or as little information as you want and then give it to us. Uh, I welcome you from the stage, but we'll welcome you as you leave if you want and give you a little gift baggie. It's got a book that our senior pastor wrote in it, information about the church. So that's for you if you want. Uh, we would love to get to meet you. I'll send you an email is basically the gist of it. If you want a phone call, I think there's a box that says a call would be nice. And so I'll call you if you think that'd be nice. So next week, everybody say next week. Next week, uh, in honor of uh, another month of doing church history, it'll, it'll be my favorite month of church history, which is the Reformation. Uh, we'll talk about in the month of March, and so next Sunday is the first Sunday of March. We are going to treat you to a hot breakfast, some eggs, pancakes, bacon, sausage, bacon! Um, so just for fun, we're doing that. We are uh, raising money. There'll be a donation box that you don't have to give to. Uh, it's not required donation, but if you bring money to give, uh, all the money will go to our mission trip to Haiti. There's some mill people, and it's kind of a Sunday. We've been announcing that um, <clears throat> trip a long time ago, so some Sunday schoolers are going, so that's where the money will go to. If you're interested in bringing money, if not, just come and eat a hot breakfast because it's, we're doing church history. And... Reformation is fun. So one more announcement for you. Another fun thing is that next Saturday we are going on a field trip. Yes, I know you love field trips as much as I do. So this Saturday coming up, it's the 1st of March. Uh, we are going, like I said last week, we are going to an Eastern Orthodox Church as Sunday schoolers. Um, and so the Eastern Orthodox Church is here in town. It's right on Fillmore. You could get more information about it on theophany.org. That's our website. That's their website. Uh, and so Saturday at 4.30, we're going to meet in the parking lot. We're going to get a tour of their church. They call it a temple uh, from Father Anthony. And it is a 
a really cool experience, unlike anything I imagine you've ever uh, been to. I'm just kind of guessing, but I've been to lots of different denominations. I've, I was raised Catholic. I feel like I've seen lots of different ways of doing church and, and praying and worshiping the God of the Bible, but this church was just so different and unlike anything I've ever been to. And so I imagine you only get invited to an Eastern Orthodox church once in your life, an opportunity to go and experience it with other noobs who have no idea what they're doing. Um, So uh, at 4.30, we'll get a tour, and then we are invited to uh, the service at 6. If you want to stay for the—it's just an hour-long service, you can experience the Eastern Orthodox Church. Pretty cool. So if you want to do that, let me know. I put my email address down at the bottom there. Email me if this week if you think you can make it, because uh, Father Anthony Carbo is going to give us some refreshments of some kind and wanted some sort of number, whether I thought 1,000 people were coming or five people were coming. Um, my guess is there's probably going to be like 15, 20 of us, so that's my guess. But if tons of you email me, then I can tell him there's going to be a few more, a few less. So, sounds fun, don't you think? Anybody, does that sound fun to anybody else? A field trip? Okay, cool. Good. So I'll be there. I'll meet you in the parking lot. We'll have a tour. And if you email me, I could send you more information. On the website, there's like etiquette um, of, of going to their church service. And they are totally cool. They, they realize that if you're coming to the, their church for the first time, you are a noob. And so they won't make fun of you. Um, they, they're okay with wh- however you dress and etiquette. But it's, it's really cool and different than anything I've ever been to. So anyways, that's that field trip. So let's continue. Let's jump right in. Uh, We're talking about church history. There's like a world record of things we're going to try to get through today. Um, I don't think we're going to get to the indulgences. We'll save that for next week. Um, But this whole lecture is really going to um, lead us into the dawn of the Reformation. That's why if you got the notes, there's a picture of the sunrise, the dawn, the change is coming. And this month we've been talking about the Middle Ages, all of February. Um, I've been giving you a homework assignment out of a book. If you're super nerdy, there's a nerd alert for you. <laughs> so we have a book that's uh, called Church History in Plain Language that I signed to you a long time ago. And if you are reading along with us, we're in chapters 20 and 22. These are the events leading to this reformation that is happening. And so as a quick review, uh, the Middle Ages, we started this whole month talking off about Um, starting off talking about how the Middle Ages is like a thousand-year camping trip, how it was like moving backwards in history as far as civilization was concerned. And uh, there was a lot of things in the Middle Ages church history that would make Jesus weep. Here's a statue of Jesus wept. This is in uh, uh, Oklahoma City. And um, this idea that God is grieved by our behavior, our horrible behavior. And in the Middle Ages, there's a lot of history of the church going through scandal, the church going through war, the church going through crusades, the church doing things that are not what the church is supposed to be doing. And so as we are reviewing this today, we will lead up to this change that is coming, this reformation, this protest of the church in all of this change that is coming. And it it will be called the Protestant 
Reformation, hence the name Protest of the Church and Reformation of the Church. That is coming. That is what next month's topic will be. But today, a few more things, um, seemingly random things, but they all tie into this change that is coming. Um, And so let's start off talking where we started, which is back to the Vikings. Anybody a fan of the Vikings? Anybody? Let's clear up some misconceptions about the Vikings. The Vikings, uh, they're always pictured with these horned hats on. And if you know anything about the Vikings, you probably know that that is a misconception. They did not wear the horned hats. There's no record of horned hats. We, don't, we do have helmets of the Vikings, and none of them have horns. We do have depictions of the Vikings from the 8th and 11th centuries, and none of them have horns. The horns came from the 1800s when artists uh, made pictures and paintings of the Vikings, and they thought it'd be cool if they had horned helmets. And so it's just kind of like one of those things that kind of stuck, but officially no horned helmets. So sorry to disappoint you. They, they probably did not have the horned helmets. There's just no evidence in history that they had the horned helmets. Um, they probably did not make their way all the way to Minnesota, even though there's a park called Lee Erickson Park where I got engaged at uh, that's named after a Viking. But they probably did make their way to Newfoundland, uh, northern Canada. Uh, Leif Erickson was a guy. His family was from Norway. He was then born in Iceland. And there are Viking settlements in Greenland, and there are even historical evidences that the Vikings made it and settled in Newfoundland. Uh, Leif Erikson, along with maybe 35-something guys, got on a boat, sailed and rowed across from Greenland to Newfoundland during this time of, they call it a medieval warm period, where uh, the temperatures were warmer and ice was melting, and people were actually able to sail from Greenland to Newfoundland, Canada. Canada, and they called it Vinland. And so that's one map. Here's another map of some Vikings in their spread. Uh, the dark red represents uh, Viking settlements in the 8th century, and then the 9th century, the red, and then further out, the orange, and then the yellow represents the 11th century. Look at all the way in England, and most of England, if you look at this map, was covered with like Viking settlements, and even like down into Italy, the, the boot of Italy was uh, settled by the Vikings. And then the green, that greenish yellow there, that represents where Vikings went um, and kind of pillaged along the way. So if you have this image of a Viking coming up out of uh, the water with a boat that looks kind of cool and pillaging a town, well, that's not too far off because the green area represents towns that were uh, pillaged and sacked, but never settled. And so if you can imagine, um, you're in the Middle Ages, there's no satellite, there's no um, like radar of your enemies coming, and one day out of a river comes boats of people and they get off the boats. And of course, you think they have horned helmets, but they really didn't have the horned helmets. And they just pillage your town. They go into your town. Um, Here's maybe a boat of what uh, a Viking boat looked like. And at the time, it was like the most technologically advanced boat in the world. It could sail. It had, uh, what do they call, rows or utter, what, oars, thank you. <laughs> like everybody screams at what, as if you're all like maritime sailors or something. <laughs> so they had the oars, they had the sails. Uh, the boat was somewhat small enough that it could uh, go up on, like a, pull it up on land and with like logs, roll it across long distances and get back into the water like an amphibious uh, war boat of some sort, at least of its time in the, in the Middle Ages. And you just imagine uh, being a Christian in a town 
and one day living in peace and the next day being pillaged by people that were from a very far off place. And of course, gold and treasures were kept in the church and in the monasteries. And so they were houses of these things that were precious. And those places would be, get, they would be destroyed and the things would be taken from them. And as a Christian, you would just pray out to God like, Enemies come up out of nowhere and, and take your city over and you'd cry out for help. And it would seem like it was just coming out of nowhere. Like, like who are these people? Uh, here's some more facts about the Vikings. They attacked Paris. They attacked York in 866. And then half of England uh, for a while became a settlement of the Vikings. Uh, if you didn't know that, that's pretty fascinating. Um, they were like the pirates of the Middle Ages. Um, Lots of attacking of the monasteries and churches because that's where uh, treasures were found. And so here's the discussion question for you. Thinking about uh, protecting ourselves. As many of you are in the military and think through, like, yes, we need to protect ourselves. We need to defend ourselves. And at the same time, there's this idea of, well, what about trusting in God? Like the psalm we read, uh, trusting in God for our own protection and deliverance. So here's the discussion question for me to be quiet for a minute and for you at your tables to discuss things. So if you're at a smaller table, jump right into a larger table. The more, the merrier. Um, so get to know your buddies. So in your humble opinion, I-Y-H-O, how should we balance this defending ourselves and this trusting in God? Like, what should we be doing um, both and? Like, how should we defend ourselves and how should we trust in God? And, and is there overlap there? So that's the question for discussion. And then I'll, I'll bring a mic out and get a few of your responses. I would love to hear from some of you. So ready, get set, discuss. All right, I have a mic. Who would anybody want to share maybe just some ideas somewhere in the middle or one side or the other? We shouldn't defend ourselves. We should defend ourselves. Anybody? You want to start? Thank you. Mr. Burton. Okay. Shh. All right. Um, I'd say just briefly just read your Bible and get a concealed carry. Read, wait, say it again. Read your Bible and read, read your Bible, get a concealed carry. <laughs> read your Bible and get a concealed <laughs> It's like a standing ovation. <laughs> That's okay. Read your Bible and get a consent. What about another side or more of that side? Anybody? Aaron Higgins, thank you for sharing. Well, it's not the other side. Uh, Jesus actually did encourage his disciples to take their swords with them to yeah, protect themselves. Yeah, he said, if you don't have a sword, go right. sell your cloak and get one. A dead disciple isn't necessarily much of a disciple. <laughs> a dead disciple is not a disciple. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, so, so there is testimony in martyrdom, but martyrdom is completely different than, than being murdered in cold blood because someone wants to take your, your village from you. Yeah. It's, it's, again, so martyrdom can't be equated to just rolling over and playing dead when someone wants to, you know, take your kids from you, rape your wife, and kill your dog. Completely different. Yeah. Okay. Extreme thoughts. <laughs> it's like we are talking about Vikings. So, anybody else? Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll run the mic back here. That's the altitude. <laughs> I think for me it came down to the difference of testing and trusting we were talking about. Um, kind of you have to act. Um, yeah. Even with like Abraham, God said, I'll make a nation out of you, but then he told him you have to go do this. You can't just, you know, it wasn't a matter of just sitting there. I think that's kind of the common thing. It's not just sitting Like our around. responsibility as 
believers yeah, to do something. You have to do your own part. Good. Yeah, it's good. Any other, other comments as I'm heading up? Yes, Miss Crow. Let me get the mic over to you. Actually, just thought of one, Esther. When she Esther in the Bible. Esther in the Bible. When yep. she defended her people, and she also trusted in God to, because she said, "If I die, I die." But she also trusted in God to keep her safe, that the so that the king wouldn't kill her because she trusted her. Yeah. In God to go to the so king. So both so the, the king trusting keep, and the doing. And the doing, yeah. Good. Good. All right. Well, here the next thing we're going to talk about is an enemy that killed a lot more people than the Vikings. And it was an enemy that they couldn't really do anything about. We today can do something about this enemy, uh, knowing what we knew. But in the Middle Ages, there was really nothing they could do. Their knowledge did not expand to defeating this enemy. Do you know what this enemy is? The plague. Yeah, I heard lots of people. I guess I... uh Gave out too much information. So, if you're still eating breakfast, you might want to stop eating for just a minute uh, as I explain this horrible disease that uh, the Middle Ages is known for, the plague. And maybe some of you remember just a few years ago, how many of you got the swine flu in 2009? Anybody? Look at all the hands. It's like four people. Get out of here, you unclean swine flu people. Um <clears throat> Just kidding. And you're all still here. So there's this epidemic, or at least this, um, um, like this warning of this epidemic, the swine flu in 2009, that was estimated. I mean, the est- if you watch the news, you were like, going, you were panicking like every other American because the estimates of how many people the swine flu could kill were upwards of the millions of people that were going to die because of the swine flu. Like 7.4 million people projected to die in 2009 because of the swine flu. And there was people wearing masks. And it, I don't know, did it start in China? At least that's the first report I remember. And then it moved to like Mexico and all these new life trips got canceled. And I think there was an outbreak of the swine flu at the academy. And it was just scary. Do you remember those times? I mean, it was legitimately like people were scared. People were wearing these masks around. And then come to find out that the number of people who had died was not in the millions, but in like the fives or six and ten. I mean, people did die, but it was not this epidemic that was being uh, touted in the news as, you know, 7.4 million people going to be killed because of the swine flu. But that is what happened in the Middle Ages. Here's a painting of someone with the plague. Looks pretty disgusting. Um, between, get this, listen to these years. Between the years 1347 and 1353, if you do your math, that's only six years, one third of Europe's population died. What? Like, that's a disease right there. I mean, the swine flu is a joke compared to the plague. So you would get this disease, and we know now that it's a gram-negative bacteria that kind of lives on fleas, and those fleas are carried by mice. And then so if you're surrounded by mice, you have interactions with mice in your food or next to you, then you can get the flea, the bacteria on the flea can kill you. And you would get this disease, and your your, uh, lymph nodes would swell up like in your neck and in your groin and in your armpits to the size of a little bigger than a chicken egg. And they were called bubbles. And that's, that's why it's also called the bubonic plague. If you're still eating breakfast, stop for just a second because it gets a lot worse. Um, 
and get these lymph nodes. You get a temperature of somewhere around 105. If you've ever had a temperature that high, that's pretty brutal. Uh, your pulse rate increases. You become exhausted. Um, your lungs and your respiratory system starts to give out and your skin becomes like purplish or bluish because you're not getting enough oxygen. Hence the name, the black death, like people were turning darker skin color because of their respiratory system failing. Um, and then in about four days after getting this or five days, you would be dead after headaches and nausea and aching joints, g- general feeling of illness, these bumps all over your body, these swollen lymph nodes, you would be dead and you would pass it on. It's this bacterial infection. And people didn't know about bacteria back then. People didn't know about penicillin back then. And so this disease spread and it would kill one family and not another. It would kill one person in a family and not the rest of the family. It would kill one whole town and not another town. And just imagine yourself being a Christian in this time when so many people were dying and you knew nothing of bacterial infections and you would just assume, oh, one God is punishing one town and not another, or Satan is is destroying one town and not another, one family and not another. And just imagine um, this pretty bad time in in church history and world history as well, Um, this time when one-third of Europe's population died. So, should we talk about something good for a minute? Okay, we're gonna go, we're gonna go. It's like Vikings and plague, and then something good, and then we're gonna go back to like church scandal. So this is one nice thing within the Middle Ages, um, and it's a pretty cool movement. Uh, it's called the Scholastic Movement, and it's a movement of theological study in the Middle Ages. So let's, you could get back to eating your bagel or whatever you were eating. Now we're done talking about the gross plague stuff. Um, let's talk about the Scholastic Movement, and this will lead us out of the Middle Ages. This re- thinking theology will lead us into the Reformation. Reform fathers will look back at some of these theologians that I'll name in just a second, and these some of this thinking and rethinking theology and reorganizing theological concepts will bring us to the dawn of the Reformation. So the scholastic movement, uh, if I was going to define it, I would say uh, maybe like a structural program of employing a method in articulating and defending theological dogma, a structured program. And and as I talk about how structured this is going to be, you're like, wow, that was very structured, a very organized way of going about studying theology in a new way that that organizes and articulates it in a way to defend it and to study theology. So I'm going to talk about three different guys very quickly. Guy number one, Anselm, you've probably heard of Anselm, the Archbishop of Canterbury, maybe you've heard of him before. Um, Pretty famous for writing out theological equations of things, such as the theological equation for the existence of God. And you could go online, I'm sure, and find Anselm's ontological argument for the existence of God. It's about one page or half a page. And you could read his argument for why God has to exist if God, by definition, is the the greatest thing ever. Like the God is by definition, this most beautiful, this most uh, powerful thing that has ever existed. But well, then by definition, it has to exist. I'm paraphrasing and horribly, uh, I just can't do justice to his own argument. You need to read it for yourself. The way he articulates this argument, you're like, wow, yeah, I could see that. If, if God has to be, if God by definition is this thing that is all powerful and the most awesome thing, well, then that thing has to exist by definition of the definition because if it didn't exist, then it wouldn't be the most awesome because existing is better than not existing. 
That's the gist of it. And you're all looking at me like you have glazed over eyes. So I, I won't pretend like I understand it either. Um, but he also came out, he rethought uh, the theology of atonement, of soteriology. He rethought the theory. And, and so before his time, people thought about the, uh, the, salva- salva- the doctrine of salvation like this. They said, um, the devil, the little G God of this world, owns this world and he has captured us because of our sin and Christ was paid, Christ's death was paid to the devil as a ransom to set us free. And that's how people thought about uh, salvation before Anselm. And Anselm said something, I'm paraphrasing, but that gives the devil too much credit. It gives the devil too much power. It's actually God and his honor that was uh, dishonored. And so Christ came and his death came to re-honor God. And so we are paid not to the devil, but to God to re-honor him because we have dishonored him through our sin. It's a very different way of thinking about salvation and atonement and how it works. Um, So this rethinking of theology leads us to just rethinking everything, and that will lead us into the Reformation. Here's another guy, uh, Peter Lombard. There's a picture of him at a party. Uh, He's just like uh, writing some things down instead of partying um, because he is known as the father of systematic theology. So if you've been coming to Sunday school for a while, you know that last year we spent uh, 10 months doing systematic theology and all the topics therein. Well, the person who kind of came up with that order, uh, he gets the credit. Peter Lombard gets the credit for organizing theological concepts in the way that we if it just makes sense. And if you've gone through systematic theology with us, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. The way in which we order them. Okay. Follows, flows. Okay. Got it. So Peter Lombard and one final guy, this is the quintessential uh, guy of the scholastic thought, Sir Thomas Aquinas. And he uh, grew up as a kid. He wasn't very smart. At least people didn't think he was very smart. Turns out he's maybe one of the best theologians that has ever existed. Uh, One of the smartest people that have ever uh, walked on the face of the earth. The kids at school called him the dumb ox because he was big and he was dumb, apparently. But turns out he was very smart. And became a Dominican priest and then wrote theology like no one else. Very influenced by Aristotle and wrote the, like imagine everybody probably has a friend who's just like very organized to the point of like insanity, like everything's organized and the way they think, the way they write is just very retentive and organized. And does, does everybody have a friend like that? Imagine that friend times like 10. And the way Thomas Aquinas goes about doing theology is just insane. Like he starts off with a proof for the existence of God. He says, let me prove the existence of God. But before that I do that, I have to say these things. And you might say these things on account of those things. So it's like, it's like, it's all structured as in like this argument. It's like, I'm going to say this, but you might say this. And to those things, I would say this. And then let me first say these things. And then let me define this. And then let me prove the existence of God based upon this, 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 and this. It's insane how he writes. And if you've ever read some of Thomas Aquinas, you will be A, probably bored to death and B, blown away by how structured thoughts and theology can be when thinking about (coughs) who God is doing philosophy. So that's the scholastic thought, this rethinking, reorganization of theology that will bring us into the Reformation. So Anselm, Lombard, Aquinas, let's move on. Back to some bad stuff. Are you okay with that? 
So more bad stuff. This will directly tie into the Reformation and the protest of the church because this happens to do happens to deal with uh, church scandal in and of itself. So this is called the Simony Scandal. And if you know your Bible a little bit, you know that in Acts chapter 8, there's a guy named Simon. Simon the sorcerer. Here's a little painting of him. There's the apostles uh, teaching and healing, and they receive the Holy Spirit, and people are healed. And then there's the guy on the right. He's all in black. And what does he have in his hand? Some cash money. And he's giving the cash money to the apostles so that he can get their power. Like, let me give you some money so that you can give me your power to heal. And uh, who is it? Is it Peter that says, let your money perish with you. You can't buy this. This is a gift of God. So this idea of the simony scandal has to do with the buying and selling of church positions. When people in the Middle Ages would be like, hey, I want to become the bishop. Here's some cash money. I didn't, I didn't make this painting. Someone else did. Um, here's some cash money to let me be bishop of this town. Here's some cash money. I want to be, hey, Joe, let me, like if you came to me, like, like, hey, Joe, let me teach me Sunday school. Here's 500 bucks. I'd be like, okay, <laughs> just kidding. I don't accept bribes. We shouldn't accept bribes. And yet this became common practice in the Middle Ages for if you wanted to have a church position, you would require someone to pay you. And there was also this uh, something called the investiture controversy, which was, it's written down as the most significant conflict between church and state in medieval Europe. And it was when political power of the day were appointing or investing in the leaders. So uh, it would be like the mayor of our town, um, what's his name, Steve Bach? Is that the current mayor? Uh, Steve Bach appointing the next pastor of New Life Church. It's like, well, why does the, why, shouldn't there be a separation of the politics and the church? Well, yes, we have that today, but in the Middle Ages, there wasn't the separation. Um, and so kings and leaders were appointing bishops of their town and of their provinces, which is just totally, it's seemingly totally contrary to how it should work. Like, shouldn't God appoint those people? And then how does that work? If, you know, like, shouldn't the church be appointing their own people? Why does it that a king gets to pick his buddy to be the church leader of the land at the time? So lots of controversy surrounding uh, events of how people were to be elected. So here's one more, a very quick discussion question for you. Uh, I don't think we'll have time to go out and get uh, a microphone uh, of some opinions, but how should? So discussion, how should, very quickly, how should church positions be passed on? Uh, how, is, how are they passed on in the Bible? Well, we see some casting of lots, like that's different than what we do. Uh, what about elders? What about a board? What about a voting democracy? What about listening to God? Well, who gets to hear God on the next leader? Uh, so very quickly, how should church positions be passed on? Discuss that very quickly at your tables. Ready, cassette, go. Discuss. All right. Well, I heard a, a couple good answers. This table down here said a rock, paper, scissor tournament uh, for deciding who should be the next church leader. Um, this table more seriously said, look at their giftings, like how church positions should be passed on uh, by gifts. But then how do you do that? Does the church come together and it's obvious that they have gifts and this other person doesn't have these gifts? Um, is there a voting? Is there democracy? 
We see in the Bible that there's leaders who are appointed by already existing leaders. Uh, there's a couple different ways leadership is passed on, but we can learn from the Middle Ages how not to do it. A, by bribery, um, just that the rich get to, get to get the position because they have enough money to pay off someone who is willing to accept a bribe. That's not good. Um, or uh, political powers who have really nothing but their own political agendas, picking church leaders that will agree with them. Well, that's not how it should be done either. There should be something um, about God's choice and the leadership God has ordained. And so at the, at the top of the church um, in the Middle Ages, because you realize that we're still in the Middle Ages, there is no uh, Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and all these Protestant denominations that we now have. There was in Middle Ages Europe, there was the Catholic Church, and then last time we did talk about the Eastern Orthodox Church that split off from the Catholic Church, but at the head was the Pope, and he was, uh, he's elected by cardinals, and so we'll talk about that in just a second, but one word that about uh, priests today and priests back then, we have in the Middle Ages under the Gregorian Reform, Pope Gregory VII, who was Pope between 1073 and 1084, made a bunch of reforms and finally made it into canon law that that if you are a clergy, if you are a priest, then you are not to be married. And so that's where that tradition comes from. And still today, the Catholic Church, upho church upholds that and Catholic priests uh, have to be celibate, not married. Um, so anyways, let's get into this one last thing that we will talk about for today. Um, the scandal of the rival popes, aka also known as the Western Schism, and sometimes people pronounce it schism, sometimes people pronounce it schism. I don't know, maybe it's tomato, tomato. Anyways, the rival popes, and we should say, and we should remind you uh, and talk about this idea that if you're not that familiar with the Catholic Church, um, well, then the pope is the head of the church, and it's not just like the head of the church is in like the president, but like the head of the church as in a representative of the church and the leader of the church, this kingdom of God on earth, um, according to the Catholics. And the, the position is like God ordained. And in, in some ways they would say he's like a mediator between God and humanity. He's God's vicar. He's God's mediator between us and humanity. And problems occurred in the Middle Ages with the Pope. And if you think back in, into our own lives and our own history as United States, uh, something like this kind of happened. I'm using, uh, so I'm, uh, it's not exact like, but you remember back in 2000, anybody remember 14 years ago when the disastrous um, election the wildest election in history, as Time Magazine puts it. Um, they obviously don't know their history very well because it wasn't that wild. But um, maybe the wildest history in American history, wildest election in American history, maybe. But anyways, if you remember the story, uh, it was Bush versus Gore for the election, uh, Republican versus Democrat. And <clears throat> the election came down. And it was a very close election. And we do know in hindsight that Gore actually won the uh, popular vote. But our voting system in the United States isn't based upon the popular vote. It's based on electoral college vote. And I'm sure some of you know more about that than I. Uh, but Florida has 25 electoral votes. And the vote in Florida was being recounted. Like, what happened? Something messed up here. And so the Supreme Court got involved and said that, yes, the recount was unconstitutional, if you remember all these details. And it was like 35 days after this election had taken place, 35 days of wondering, 
Who in the world is the elected president? What is going on here? How, people were just questioning the whole electoral college system. People were questioning how votes were handled. People were questioning uh, the little hanging chads. And it was like a voter's intention. And all these words are being thrown around. And who is really the president? And there was a time, these 35 days, when there was uh, economic downfall and people were re-questioning our whole nation, like, how is this happening? Who is the president? Do you remember those times? Is anybody old enough to remember 14 years ago when that happened? It was a time of confusion. Yeah, what is going on? Who is the president? Well, imagine those 35 days carried out over 35 uh, or 39 years. And imagine it's not just the presidency of the United States, but it's the Pope. It's the person who is supposed to be the mediator in medieval Catholic theology. And in Catholic theology today, this mediator, this vicar between God and humanity, this head of the kingdom of God on earth living today, two popes warring it out. So here's kind of what happens. I'm going to give you lots of different names and lots of different, different confusing things, but keep this bigger idea that there's going to be more than one pope. So in 1378, a pope by the name of Gregory XI, he dies. And the cardinals, if you know anything about how popes are elected, the cardinals in Rome elected a pope out of being pressured to uh, elect a Roman and not anything else pope. And so they elect this guy. His name is Urban VI, and then he's a disastrous choice. Three months later, all the cardinals get together and say, that election didn't actually count. He's not the real pope. Just kidding. We're going to elect a different pope by the name of Clement VII. And so they elect another pope, Clement VII. So now you have two popes. And Clement VII moves the papacy and where he lives from Rome, the Vatican, to the city of Avignon, France. And so now you have two popes, two bishops of two different cities claiming to be the head of the church. Who is really the pope? Well, there's councils that were called to decide who is the real pope, but neither pope would show up because the pope is supposed to be the head over all the church. And so if he came to a council, then it would be saying, well, then the council is the head of the church. Is the council subject to the pope or is the pope subject to the council? Well, that's why the, neither pope would show up. Um, it goes on so long that both of those popes die. And if you know anything about the popes, they live, they, they are a pope until they either resign or die. Both popes die. Then Avignon and Rome elects other popes. And so the, the problem continues for years and years and years. Uh, who is actually the pope? At one point, a council conforms and says, we got a solution. We'll elect another pope and he'll be the real pope. So they elect another pope in Pisa. And now there's three popes, a three-ring circus of people all claiming to be the head of the church. And if you could just stop and think what this would mean to you if you were Catholic living in the Middle Ages and you were a Christian. And by the way, if you were a Christian living in the Middle Ages, you were Catholic. There wasn't any Baptists yet, no Presbyterians, no New Life Church yet, no New Life Worship. I know it's hard to believe, but those things did not exist yet. Um, so you're thinking to yourself, yeah, who really is the leader of the church? Maybe before this time, you didn't really question it. Oh, so the Pope, he's elected by the cardinals and he's the head of the church and God has ordained this. But now there's three popes all claiming to be the real Pope. Well, the real Pope, three, please stand up. And then three guys would be like, well, we're, we're here. Anyways, 
The Pope in Pisa and the Pope in Rome gang up against the Pope in uh, Avignon, France, and they excommunicate him. And then there's some transition. And finally, 39 years later, a Pope in Rome, Martin V, is elected, and this whole thing kind of concludes. But you could see what it did. And this is very close to when the Protestant Reformation will happen. <coughs> 14, 17 is the year. This scandal ends, and it will be a very historic day in 1517 that Martin Luther, we'll talk about next week, will nail 95 theses, uh, points, bullet points, stinging the Catholic Church for reform, and we'll talk about that next time. So to conclude today's lesson, which is kind of the conclusion of our Middle Ages church history, reform is coming, change is coming. I put a uh, sunrise as a picture of the notes today because people often talk about these events uh, as the dawn of the Reformation. These church scandals that happened, these wars, these uh, arguments from within the church, these scandals, um, the scholastic movement of rethinking theology, all leads us to this like change, this reformation of the church, this like course correction of the church that is coming. And as Sunday school, we, we talk about church history but we don't just talk about it as this thing that we study, we apply it to our lives. And I think the application for us today is that our own lives need to be course corrected. And we as Christians should always be willing and, and humble enough to, to look at the direction our life is going or an area or a habit or a pattern or a sin that we uh, keep doing and keep going on the same direction and realize that the Lord is taking us maybe through a course correction that we need to examine our own life, maybe like the church did in the Middle Ages, an examination, a protest of the way things were going, a reformation of the way things were going, and to course correct our own lives. So that's kind of the, the application, the thought, and the prayer today. So let's pray this morning. Uh, we talked about a lot of things, a lot of names, a lot of things, but um, there's this idea that we, as ourselves, we, the church, need to course correct and be willing to change our lives in accordance to God. So, Father, we come before you this morning as Sunday schoolers, as, as nerds uh, of, of, of new life, as nerds of church history. And God, we don't want to just learn this stuff with our minds, but we want to apply it to our hearts. And Lord, um, would you make yourself known in our lives that we could conform ourselves, our life around you and your, your ways to bend our life around you instead of trying to bend um, our, our own ways and, and force our agendas, Lord. But would you course correct our lives? We, we give our life over to you. We praise you. We worship you, Lord. And everybody said, amen. All right, friends. Peace out. Hopefully I'll see you at the field trip on Saturday. Come next week for the hot breakfast. Peace out. Thank you for listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.